Uh, do please keep uh, your uh, service sheets um, with you to hand, especially looking at this passage on the back from 1 John. But before we dive into that, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, may my spoken word this morning be faithful to your written word here in Scripture and point us all to your living word, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, memories of that hot summer are beginning to fade. The leaves are starting to fall from the trees. The nights are getting chillier, you may have noticed that. And normally, my beloved Tottenham Hotspur start losing football matches. Although this season seems to be a very rare exception. So it must be the autumn and the beginning of a new sermon series. But before I turn to that... uh, I think I've been reminded this week, of all weeks, that Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth was not, unlike me, a great football fan. This despite her being patron of the English Football Association. As one former FA chairman explained, there are no horses in football. (laughs) And try as we might, we could never find a way of involving horses in football. He tells the story of how he once persuaded Her Majesty to come to a cup final at Wembley, which she seemed to enjoy. And so at the end, he asked Her Majesty who she thought had played the best. Her reply, the band of the Scots Guards. (laughs) On this, the eve of the state funeral of Her Majesty, I will be returning to the Queen a little later But back to our new sermon series. And this autumn, we're going to be focusing on the three core values which our district church council has recently adopted for our church family here at St. Mary's. And here they are. uh, Nurturing biblical faith, offering gospel hope, and showing Christ-like love. Now, did you see what we've... Can we have the, the, um, the slide back up? Do you see what we've done there with a the little box, faith, hope, love? Does that remind you of anything? Well, yes, in a way, it's 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? Faith, hope, and love. But, but know that these aren't just abstract concepts. They're things that we, as a church family, do, we seek to do. Things that we practice. Things that distinguish us, that mark us out as a faith community. Faith, hope, and love. Biblical faith. Gospel hope. Christ-like love. Now, Edward, our rector, introduced this series at a meeting of small groups on Wednesday this week, Wednesday evening. And he spoke about the first of these core values, nurturing biblical faith. And Edward also explained why This term, we're going to be looking not at 1 Corinthians, but rather at 1 John, the first letter of John. As Edward put it, 1 John is in many ways an unusual letter, as it's not written in a linear way, like some of Paul's letters, for example, going logically, argument by argument, from A to B. Edward helpfully used the metaphor of tube lines. 1 John is more like the metropolitan line. Starting in Chesham, or maybe not starting in Chesham if the trains are on the blink, but starting in Chesham and running all the way through to King's Cross or Aldgate. You see, the letter doesn't head in one direction. Rather, it's more like the circle line, where the author, 
who of course is the Apostle John, who wrote the fourth gospel, where John keeps going round and round, coming back to the same points that he's made earlier. As Edward put it, 1 John is a bit like an orchestral symphony, where you hear this distinctive melody and then discover that it keeps on reoccurring later on in the piece. And 1 John, John's first letter, has three particular melodies, which helpfully for us this autumn focus on our three core values, on biblical faith, on gospel hope, on Christ-like love. And so this morning we're starting to look at the second of these core values, the second of these recurring melodies in John's symphony, and it's offering gospel hope. But let's just back up a bit and think about the context of 1 John. We don't know exactly which particular church or group of Christians this letter was written to because the letter doesn't say. But scholars think it was possibly a church in or near Ephesus, which is where John was based at that time. And it was a church that was riven by division. In particular, a group of false teachers or false prophets, as John calls them later in this letter, they had split away from the church and were spreading false doctrines about who Christ was and is and the very nature of sin. And at the same time, they were claiming that they were the true believers, that they were in fellowship with Christ and his apostles. And this was inevitably, as you can imagine, creating great confusion and uncertainty amongst the faithful believers who'd stayed behind in the congregation. What should they believe? So John, who of course knew Jesus personally, he was one of his disciples, John wrote this letter to bolster the confidence of this faithful remnant, to give them clear guidance on how they should evaluate and indeed counter the false claims of these false teachers, how they could be sure what true fellowship with God and his apostles and with all believers, what true fellowship looks like. Just look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this wasn't fellowship in the sense that sometimes we think of today, a kind of tea and cake fellowship, more tea vicar. No one's ever said that to me yet. If you want to say that to me, please do. No, it's not that kind of fellowship. This is a deep participatory, active fellowship, a deep fellowship united in the person of Jesus Christ, the Christ who was revealed to us by the apostles. And John wants, in this early part of his first letter, to emphasize that there are three signs of a Christian who has this genuine, deep, participatory fellowship with God and with the apostles and with all true believers through Christ. Three signs. And the first is doctrinal. It's about what we believe. What do we actually believe about the person of Jesus? What do we believe about who he was in history and who he is today? What do you believe about Jesus? Because John is crystal clear on this point. Just look at verse 1. He is 
the eternal life. For he is the word of life. Verse 2, he is the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And John knows this for himself because he heard Jesus say as much. Our gospel reading, which Ruth read, John chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so coming back to our core values, this is the basis of our biblical faith, that we're called to nurture in ourselves and to nurture in others. That Jesus was with God from the beginning. And though he is God, he revealed himself to us as a man through the incarnation, through the infleshing. That's what incarnation means. And he gives us eternal life, verse 2, through his death and resurrection. And we can be certain of this because John the Apostle and all the apostles who heard and saw and looked at and touched Jesus, verse 1, they can vouch with authority for who Jesus was and is. This is the basis of our biblical faith, rooted in the apostolic witness. And John is saying that anything that goes against these central truths about Jesus is a false teaching. So that is the doctrine. That's about what we believe. That's the basis of our biblical faith. Secondly, and we're going to look at this a bit more in, in next Sunday and in, in, in later on in the series, John wants to highlight the second sign of being in true fellowship with God and the apostles and all true believers. And it's not so much doctrinal about what we believe, it's social. It's about what we do. How do we relate to each other? How do we relate to other believers here in the church family in St. Mary's? How do we relate to the world through our mission partners, through our witness here in Chesham? And there, the distinctive characteristic is love. Or, as we have it as our third core value, Christ-like love. In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 of his letter, John writes this, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And we know how Jesus lived. He lived a life of love. And then verse 10 of chapter 2, Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. You see, sound doctrine, biblical faith, is meaningless unless it is accompanied by a life marked by love. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13 again, verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So, sound doctrine, the basis of our biblical faith, and Christ-like love, the distinctive characteristic of our Christian community, of our fellowship in Christ. But this morning, as I've said, we're going to begin to look at the second of our core values and the third sign of true fellowship with God here in 1 John. And this is the thing that underpins our faith, which is gospel hope. A hope that we hold to for ourselves, 
and a hope that we offer to others. But hope in what, exactly? Well, hope first in a God who is holy and righteous. That's what John asserts when he writes, look at verse 5, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Now, light is a metaphor, it's used throughout scripture. It means truth, goodness, holiness, integrity. And God is pure truth. He is pure goodness. He is pure holiness, pure integrity. There is no dark side, no bad side to God. Actually, the Greek in verse 5 is is, is a double negative to reinforce the point. Darkness in him, not is none. That's what it says. Darkness in him, not is none. John could not be clearer. The message could not be clearer. God is light. In him there is no darkness. But this presents a problem, doesn't it? Because we are all unrighteous sinners. So how can we possibly have this fellowship that John talks about with this holy, righteous God who is light, who hates sin? Now, some of these false teachers, these secessionists, let's call them, who had broken away from the church that John is writing to, they got round this problem by claiming that, hey, sin doesn't really matter. You can walk in darkness but still have fellowship with God. Some even argued that once we accept Christ, we don't sin, or we don't have sin in us. But John nails these lies for the falsehoods that they are. Just look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And then again in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, the Greek word used for lie and for liar in this passage is the root of our English word, sued. John is saying that people who go on deliberately sinning while claiming to be in fellowship with God, while claiming to be walking in the light, these people are suits. They're fakes. People who deny that they have a problem with sin in their lives. They're suits. They're fakes. They walk not in light with God, but in darkness. The story goes that a man once told the great preacher and pastor, Charles Spurgeon, that he had been sinless for two months. Spurgeon thought that he would test this supposedly sinless quality, and so he trod heavily on the man's toe, at which point the man's proud record of sinlessness came to an inglorious end. (laughs) Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we are all sinners, surely this creates a big problem for our relationship with our creator God, because he's light, he's pure truth, he's pure holiness, pure righteousness, and our sin and our rebellion are intolerable to him. He cannot bear it. 
So our hope in this righteous, holy God, who is pure light, is, at first glance, tempered by the sobering knowledge that our sin and our rebellion inevitably separate us from this holy God. But that, my friends, is when we come to gospel hope. Just look at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And here is our gospel hope. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the King James Version of the Bible and some other modern translations like the ESV, the Greek word used for atoning sacrifice is translated as propitiation. It's a long, jargony word, not one that's easy to say with a packet of wine gums in your mouth. But it simply means making God propitious, making him favorable towards us. A holy God who by rights should be angry with us for our sin and our rebellion, instead looks on us with mercy and compassion and favor, not because of our own merits, but because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Christ is, as John says, verse 2, our advocate with the Father. He's our defender, our comforter, our helper. As the words of that great old hymn declare, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. So, says John, ignore the fake teachers, ignore the seuds and the false prophets. We can be clear and confident about what fellowship with God the Father and the Son and with all the apostles and with all true believers looks like. It's based on sound doctrine, on what we believe. A true understanding of who Jesus is and was, the biblical faith revealed to us through the apostolic witness as revealed in scripture. It's manifested through the sharing of Christ-like love with each other here in the family, the church family, with, with the world. And it's underpinned by gospel hope Hope in a righteous, holy God, a God who is light itself, a God in whom there is no darkness, and hope in his son Jesus, who came into the world as a man and who is, by his death and, re and resurrection, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the gospel hope that we are each one of us to nurture in ourselves and to share with the world. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. One of the challenges in our modern society is that people either have no hope or they place what hope they do have in the wrong things. They place it in their self-identity or their status or their careers or their material wealth on their Twitter feed or Instagram feed. They don't realize their own sinfulness and their need for, verse 2, verse 1 of chapter 2, an advocate with the Father. If anything, this unwillingness 
to address and confront the problem of our sin has got worse, even during the 70 years of Her Majesty's reign. 1952, for example, when the Queen came to the throne. It's impossible to imagine at that time an acknowledged adulterer becoming Prime Minister. Now, we've had two in a row. Sin has become normalized, acceptable in our society, a matter of personal choice rather than one for social and moral disapproval. Her late majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, to her great credit, recognized our need, her need, of an advocate with the father. Gospel hope underpinned her long life and infused so many of her public statements. In her 2011 Christmas broadcast, she said this, It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Although we're capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, but a savior with the power to forgive. As we reflect today on Her Majesty's life and prepare ourselves for her state funeral tomorrow, we give thanks for her years of service, for her unshakable gospel hope, for her recognition that even she, the sovereign of the United Kingdom and head of the Commonwealth and one of the wealthiest women in the world, even she needed a savior. Someone shared this image on Facebook this week of the queen laying aside her own crown as she is welcomed by the King of Kings, her Saviour, Jesus, the focus of her lifelong gospel hope. May we follow Her Majesty's wonderful example and not only know and experience to the full that gospel hope for ourselves, but may we also share it with all whom we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your Son, Jesus, you give us gospel hope. We thank you that you are a holy and righteous God who is pure light, in whom there is no darkness, in whom darkness none is not, as John puts it. And we thank you, Lord, for your Son, whom you sent to die for us, to be our atoning sacrifice for our sins. May we know that gospel hope for ourselves. And may we offer it to those around us day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.